may it not just be our words that worship you, but may it be our lives as well. Lord, we are so grateful for who you are, for what you're doing in our lives, and Lord, even what you're doing in this world. It's just amazing to sit back and watch you work. So Lord, we just pray as we go forward, Lord, in your name, that our lives would continue to be a constant worship to you no matter what we face. Lord, we lift up Linda to you today. Lord, as she's mourning the death of her husband, our brother, Don. Lord, we are so, when the body grieves, we, when someone in the body grieves, we all grieve, Lord, and that's certainly the case here. It's grateful that my son Brian may be walking out of that hospital tomorrow. That is truly a miracle. And so, Lord, we're just so grateful for so many things. Go before us here today. Feed us, Lord, with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. You guys want to say hello to one another as you are seated? Listen, if you would, open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 38. We're going to begin there, Lord willing, this morning. Just a couple of short announcements this morning. Um, I really and truly am sorry that we had to cancel the men's movie night. I was really looking forward to that, but you all understand the circumstances. So we will be rescheduling that pretty soon, as a matter of fact. Um, there is a movie night coming up for the church on the 24th. That's a Sunday after service. That will be the movie Heaven's War that you saw the um, preview for. It looks like, a, especially in today's what's going on right now, it, it looks like it's pretty, uh, it's a timely movie for us to watch, I believe. And then uh, we have Wednesday, of course, this week. It will be Saul and Biblical Interpretation at 7 o'clock, so if you could come out for that. But before we dig into the word this morning, I just wanted to um, mention a few things before we dig into things. Just to remind you that our focus for 2021 is to focus on Jesus in the midst of the storm. And the Lord has been so gracious to provide us with a snowstorm the day I delivered that message. And then since then, you know, the death of our brother Don and the injury to my son. And, and there's already been some storms before we got even out of the gate in 2021. So... Just a reminder, we just keep focusing on him no matter what. And so that brings me to something I wanted to discuss with you this morning. I'm pretty sure you all know my political views and where I stand politically. I love this country. Always have, always will. I love what it used to stand for. Okay? But we're not going to go there because it's time to move past that. Stop focusing on all these political happenings and what's going on and focus on the Lord. He is our only hope, our only hope, and we need to continue to focus on him and him only. I, although I believe that there should still be words of comfort, isn't that what the Bible tells us, that in these last times comfort one another, especially comfort one another with the reminder that the rapture is near and, and so that is a comfort to us, but I also believe that the pulpits in America have become too 
comfortable. The sheep in America have become too comfortable. And I can stand up here all day long and warn you. It's easy to warn a congregation because a warning is nothing more than saying this may happen and I want you to be prepared. But I believe we've moved past the warning stage. I believe that what these pulpits in America should be used for now is to prepare you, to encourage you, and to strengthen you for what is coming. What is coming? The warning stage is over. We are in the midst of this at this point. And I want you to be prepared. I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to be strengthened. So Lord willing, as we go forward, those are the messages you're going to hear from this pulpit, at least. We're in some very interesting times, aren't we? And so let me give you, let me share with you just one small, tiny example of what I'm talking about. When a pastor, a Methodist pastor, who supposedly knows the word of God and speaks the word of God, says a woman after he says amen. Now, aside from the fact that it, it generated some hilarious memes on Facebook, thank you for that, by the way, pastor. Um, it was a subtle shot over the bow. Now, I'm sure there's many pastors. Sadly, there are many pastors out there who said, well, that was really clever, and, and we need more of that. No, we don't. We have way too much of that. Here's why I believe it's a shot over the bow. First of all, my son, who is not a believer, knows what the word amen means. He shared that with me yesterday. He goes, amen doesn't even mean that. It means and so be it. Now, if he, as a non-believer, knows what it means, I have to believe that this Methodist pastor also knows what the word means. He's just being clever, if you will. The reason this is important, the reason I believe this is a shot over the bow, is because when you look at the state of our political situation right now, Congress wants to change to gender-neutral terms. No longer will there be mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, but gender-neutral terms. And why that's concerning to me, and it should be concerning to you, is when I read my Bible, it's not gender-neutral. The Lord created the man and woman. He created marriage between a man and a woman. And so if secularly they're starting to weed out those, that terminology and bring in gender-neutral terms, how long is it before they come after this book? And if they come after this book, they're coming after us. Not all of us, because as I've said many times before, there are many churches around the world that do not use this book at the pulpit. Christians aren't sitting in their seats with a book on their lap. So for them, it's just business as usual. We are living, as I said, in some very interesting times, and you need to be prepared for what is coming. This is why in the book of Hebrews, it's, Hebrews it speaks about, do not forsake the fellowship of the saints. Why? So that we can encourage one another, lift one another up, strengthen one another as the last days approach. That's why we're here. So let's continue to do that as we go forward because we don't know. You know, as I shared with one brother this morning, I don't know. If, you know, we handed out tithing records this morning. By the way, they're on the back table if you didn't get yours. Um, I don't know if we're going to be here to hand them out next year. I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But we keep moving forward and we keep doing what the Lord's called us to do until we have to make those decisions and then we make them together as a body. Amen?
Okay, so I'll get off my soapbox. And we're going to look at Ezekiel 38 first this morning. But I'm blown away by the fact that Satan, who knows the Bible, is still putting up a fight. It's incredible, isn't it? You'd think by now he'd just throw in a towel. I mean, he's read the end of the book. And the only conclusion that makes any sense that you can come to is that Satan doesn't believe the Bible. Although he knows it, although he's read it, although he can quote it, I think he's not convinced that he loses in the end. I mean, how else do you make sense of this? The enemy has deceived many around the world that the Bible is not the inerrant word of God. Even Christians. Therefore, many don't believe it. And to their detriment, they don't read it, and they will not heed its warnings. The enemies even cause those who do believe that the Bible is the word of God to put it way, way, way down on the bottom of their priority list. Therefore, they don't read the Bible. And to their detriment, they don't know what the word of God says. And so they wind up with a worldview of what's going on instead of a biblical view of what's going on. You see, Satan knows the Bible. He doesn't believe it. Christians believe the Bible. They don't know it. That's a difference. And it's a difference that has gotten us into a world of trouble. Amen? So Satan still believes that he can win in the end. And think about it. He tried to put Jesus to death. But yet Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. God told Satan that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would defeat him, but Jesus returned to heaven. And so I wonder if Satan thinks that he's won, and Jesus retreated. Satan's read at the end of the book, yet it doesn't stop him or prevent him from trying to change the outcome of the end of the book. And so as we go through our text this morning, we're going to discover that Satan really does truly think he can win in the end because he's going to try to kill Jesus again. Crazy. I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Almost as crazy as saying a woman after amen. All right, I'll let that alone. Believe it or not, that's what the Battle of Armageddon is all about. And we're going to look at that this morning. But this period of time that we're reading about in Revelation was spoken of by Jesus. And the words of Jesus gives us some idea, some insight into what's going on in the world during this tribulation period at a time when you and I have been taken out of this world. Matthew chapter 24 verses 9 through 14 say, Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because lawlessness in, is increased, most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole, to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This world and this shouldn't come as a surprise to us, is a very deceitful place, isn't it? You seems like you can't trust anyone any longer. Not even pastors. Especially pastors that don't read from this book. And then the ones who do read from the book, you have to worry about them twisting what they're reading. So that, lays the, that puts the onus right on you, doesn't it, as believers. You must know the word of God. 
so that you can understand when someone's telling you something that's not right. We're living in a world where no one is willing to help their fellow man anymore. And as that, as that tribulation comes into play here, that's going to get worse and worse and worse as the love of many will continue to grow cold. There's lawlessness that will rule the day during the tribulation. And all of that is just a sign, an indication that the end is near. But before the end comes, before Jesus defeats the enemy and the armies of the Antichrist, the gospel, he tells us, will be preached to all the nations. And then the end will come. And we see that. We see the gospel preaching angel who flies around the middle of the world and, he, and he's preaching the gospel message so that everyone on the planet hears it. We have the 144,000 Billy Grahams running around the world preaching the gospel message. We have the two witnesses in Israel preaching the gospel message. And so everyone on earth will have no excuse that they have not heard the gospel message. And then the end will come. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation as we go through it. The end of the world as we know it is going to happen. It's coming. And what we're seeing right now all around us is the stage being set for that very event to occur, for Jesus to return to this earth. You know, those who kick against the goads and, and who, who are, you know, I'm still talking to friends who say, well, you know, Trump's still got a chance. I'm like, come on, give it up already. Even I don't think he's got a chance at this point. But we're, they're still putting their faith and hope and trust in man and in a world system. And this world is dying. This world is coming to an end. We see that this is what has to happen. It must happen as the stage is being set for the return of Jesus Christ. What we're seeing in the world right now must take place. You understand that, right? We're witnessing shadows of what's going to occur during the tribulation. And if we're witnessing these shadows now, how close is the real thing? So one of the signs that Jesus speaks of that we're moving closer and closer to the end times is the battles that he speaks of in Matthew. And there's three wars that have not been fought yet that are coming. The Ezekiel 38 war, the battle of Armageddon, and the war at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus. And, and I thought it would be interesting to briefly look at each one of those battles. So if you have your Bibles open to Ezekiel 38, let's take a look at verses 1 through 23. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaw, and lead you out, with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with the shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togermah from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. 
And listen, we're seeing this right now. People are returning to Israel in droves. They're coming back into the land, which has long been desolate. They were brought out from the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, and you will, you and your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and dwell in the midst of the Lord. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then will you come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, and all of them riding on horses and great company and mighty arms, a mighty army rather, you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. You will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before your eye, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass that the same, at the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken, surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be torn down, and the steep places will fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. And I will rain down on him and his troops and the, and the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, for many years, many years, Israel's enemies have been coming against them, trying to take their land, wanting to take what God has given them. And if you look at the map that we have up on the screen right now, you see that piece of land that's kind of highlighted, it kind of sets out in a 3D place there? Is it up there yet? Okay. That is the land that God gave them. That's how far out that boundary goes. And now you notice where little tiny Israel is in the midst of all of that. So what they've lost over the years is substantial. They do not own the land that God has given them. But yet the enemies, even the enemies of Israel, even knowing that they've taken so much land from them already, aren't satisfied with that. They want it all. They want Israel completely wiped off the face of the map. They want that land to be theirs. And so one of the enemy's 
strategies is to come to war against Israel from the north. And it's not going to be for land. It's going to be to defeat Israel. It's going to be to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And so the enemy of, which, of the world, which he controls at this point, Satan is the prince of this world, hates Israel. And all those who follow him, all those who are of the enemy, hate Israel as well. And they want to see Israel wiped off the face of the map. And so with the people either killed or enslaved, it would allow countries like Iran, Sudan, and other countries that hate Israel in that area to take control of that land and therefore make it a Muslim-ruled territory. Listen, these Islamist extremists are not going to be happy until there's the flag of Islam flying over Jerusalem, the capital. They have instituted infatadas before. And an infatada is nothing more than a, uh, an uprising, a rebellion. They call it a legitimate uprising against an oppressing force. They consider Israel an oppressing force. But this war, this infatada is going to be the ultimate war against Israel because they believe with the amount of troops coming against Israel that they're going to break the back of Israel once and for all and there will be an Islamic flag hanging over Jerusalem. And so something I want you to take note of as we go through some of the detail of Ezekiel 38 is that it's similar to our text in Revelation, and we will get there this morning. The enemy puts it in the hearts of these armies to come against Israel, but God draws them in. And once God has them where he wants them, God destroys them. So God places a hook in the mouth of Russia, Gog. And so it, it, it's kind of like you, when you catch a fish. The fish has the hook in its mouth, and it has no other choice but to be turned around and be reeled in. And that's exactly what happens to Russia. They have a hook put in their mouth and they have no other choice now but to turn towards Israel because God is reeling them in to exactly where he wants them. We don't know what that hook is, but my guess is that that hook is the natural gas deposit that Israel has recently discovered. Israel now sits on the mother load of natural gas. And so to get an idea of what that means to Russia, Russia is currently the largest supplier of natural gas in the area. And so for Israel to begin to sell this natural gas, it's going to hurt Russia economically. And that could very well be the hook that draws them in, along with the hatred of the other nations for Israel already. But whatever the hook is, it gets their attention and it draws them in to Israel. And in order to understand who they are, we have to understand that God list them here by their ancient names. The Gog of, or the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So the leader of this army will be Gog, from the land of Magog. Now Jerome, who was a prominent church leader, declared that Magog was located north of the Caucasus Mountains near the Caspian Sea. Josephus and some of the Greek writers say that the name Magog is associated with the Scythians. So the Scythians live near the Black Sea. They live near the Caucasus Mountains. So it appears that Magog, that land, is located near the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, right by the Caucasus Mountains. And there's only one nation that that describes, and that is the nation of Russia. And so Russia, we believe, now becomes the leader of this coalition 
as they bring their armies from the north against Israel. And that's the other clue we have in Ezekiel 38, is that they are from the far north. And if you look at the map, Russia is the nation that is to the far north of Israel. And so when you put this all together geographically, and the lineage of these ancient people, we can see that this is absolutely Russia that becomes the leader or chief priest of Meshach and Tabal. Now the Assyrian records refer to Meshach as the Musky. And this is a group that settled in or near Armenia where the borders of Russia, Iran, and Turkey converge. And you can see that on the map. The people of Tabal were located in the central part of Turkey, immediately west of Togrimah. Persia is what? Modern-day Iran, which has become, in recent years, a stronghold for Hezbollah. Hezbollah is no fan of Israel. Ethiopia is not the modern-day Ethiopia that we know. In ancient times, Ethiopia was primarily referred to as the modern-day nation of Sudan. Sudan is located in the upper Nile River area, just south of Egypt, and it was also called Kush. That was his ancient name, and that maybe your translations probably say Kush. Today, that area is dominated by Islamic fundamentalists. Libya is a western neighbor of Egypt, also an Islamic nation today. They are strongly anti-West and anti-Israel. Gomer was known as the ancient terms as the Chimerians, and they originally lived north of the Caucasus Mountains in the southern part of what is now modern Russia. In Ezekiel's time, however, that was considered part of Turkey. Now the people of Turgama were identified by Josephus as the Phrygians, and they settled in Cappadocia, which of course is now eastern Turkey. So what we have here is a coalition of armies consisting mainly of Islamic fundamentalists, including Russia, Iran, Turkey, Sudan, and Libya coming against Israel in the later days. And the reason this is such an important piece of prophetic scripture is because this battle hasn't happened yet. This is on the horizon. And up to a few years ago, Russia, Turkey, and Iran weren't even allies. They are today. They are today. In fact, Russia, Turkey, and Iran militarily have troops in Syria, which sits right on the border of Israel. So this attack will happen, as, as Ezekiel 38 tells us, at a time when Israel is dwelling in peace and safety. An unwalled village without bars and gates, and I can tell you from experience that they are not there yet. There are plenty of bars and gates and walls in Israel. But that could change overnight, couldn't it? If a more liberal faction takes over Israel and opens up the borders and takes down the fences, I mean, I, I, listen, at this point, nothing would surprise us, would it? Or, and this is probably more the case, Israel feels so at ease with the guarantees that the Antichrist makes with them that they take down their own borders. Many, Israel, many people in Israel feel that those borders are eyesores anyway, so it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be that disturbed by them coming down. So that would mean that this war would take place right after the rapture of the church, as the Antichrist comes to power. So whenever this war does take place, because there's plenty of scholars out there that believe it could take place before, during, or after 
the rapture of the church. So they, you know, it's like win, place, and show at the track. They got all the bases covered. But look at who destroys them. They're going to come. This war is going to take place. It will be considered by many to be a third world war. And so all these nations come against Israel. Israel won't need the help of any foreign allies. Because God is going to intervene and God is going to destroy this invading army with a massive earthquake, with landslides, with panic that comes among all of these troops that cause them to turn their own swords upon each other, with pestilence, with disease, with, with excessive rain, with hailstones, with fire, with brimstone. Listen, God's going to throw everything at them, including the kitchen sink, when they come against Israel. The destruction of this invading army will be so extensive that the mountains and the open fields of Israel, which are just rolling hills and, and empty spaces everywhere, will be littered and overwhelmed with corpses. And just to give you some perspective of what we're talking about in size of manpower and numbers, Russia, Iran, and Turkey alone have just under 2 million troops together. When you add in the Sudan and you add in Libya to that, you're looking at a formidable force coming against Israel, and all of them will be wiped out. All of those bodies will be laying there, and God will bring the birds of the air, the fowl and the beast of the earth to take care, to help clean up the corpses laying there. Ezekiel, tells, Ezekiel 38 tells us that the Jewish people take seven months to bury the bodies of the dead, those who don't become food for the animals. And that the remainder of the seven years it takes to just dismantle and take apart those weapons. And so that's a good indication to me that this war begins right at the very beginning of the seven-year tribulation. God brings them in and destroys them. And that's what he's going to do as we go on to the kings of the east. So turn now, if you will, to Revelation chapter 16. are in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So we have to understand, first of all, who dries up the waters of the Euphrates? But he does that at the command of the Lord, doesn't he? In, in the earlier part of Revelation 16, we saw that Jesus gave them the command to pour out these bowls. So this is Jesus who commands the angel to dry up the river Euphrates. And so God has this dried up, and it has to be divinely orchestrated because the Euphrates River is no small river, is it? It's over 1,700 miles long, and at the widest point, it is over three football fields wide. And this just dries up completely. This is also the area where the Tower of Babel stood. It's the area where Babylon once stood, and it is currently modern-day Iraq. And there's no coincidence that these armies engaged in this last battle before the turn of, return of Jesus crossed this area, crossed this river in the very same area that this evil once existed. We talked about this. This area is, is the very seat, the very throne of where Satan is. 
It's no coincidence, therefore, that this area is controlled by demonic forces, the same forces that have always been in this area. Remember when we were in Revelation 9, when we saw the four angels who were being restrained at the river Euphrates? Where else would you want to have your base of operations but at your base of operations? This is Satan's base of operations, his headquarters, if you will. So God dries up this river, and he does it because he wants to make a way for the kings of east to cross over the Euphrates River and march right into Israel. And if you look at the map on the screen now, you will see that from China, there is a direct line right through to Israel. North, just east of Israel to the rising of the sun is China. Right behind them is North Korea. Right behind them is Japan. Now, China currently boasts an over two million man army. It is the largest army in the world. North Korea currently has over a one million man army. And assuming that North Korea is part of this because they're just another communist country and they're all together in this, this could also possibly include Japan. So that would bring the amount of troops moving into this area to well, well over 3 million people. And they're all going to wind up in the Jezreel Valley, which, believe me, can hold that many troops. But this is a setup. It's a setup. It's the same setup we saw in Ezekiel 38. God allows them to be drawn in. The enemy draws them in. And God lets them come in and then destroys them. Look at the next verses in 13 and 14. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So these unclean demonic spirits, the same spirits that we see working around the world, deceiving many, causing havoc today, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well, isn't it? Even though the Antichrist isn't here, the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. So these unclean spirits come from the mouth of the prophet, from the Antichrist, from Satan, and they entice these kings of the east to move. They entice them to battle. They're lying spirits. They're professing the doctrines of, of Satan. They, they've been able to deceive these armies and the armies of the earth to go to war. But I want you to understand, they're not moving against Israel. They're not coming to Israel. Israel is not the target this time. This is not the Ezekiel 38 war. That war has ended, and they're still cleaning up after that aftermath. This is the final war before the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, and it is not fought against Israel. It is fought against God himself. Listen to what the psalmist says. But do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He's speaking of God and the Messiah. And listen to what they're saying. Let us break away from them. We don't want to be under God anymore. We don't want to be under Jesus. We don't want to know that there's a God. We want to be our own gods. 
If that doesn't sound like Nimrod and, and the Tower of Babel, nothing does. And as crazy as this sounds, these nations are so angry with God that they decide to go to battle with him, to break free of the chain, to break free of, of God and, and, and of whatever they think is holding them. Think about what's transpired in the world at this point. The oceans have been turned to blood, killing all of marine life around the world. The sun has scorched men and women, and there's been a darkness that's covered the land, a darkness that's brought such a frigid cold that it even hurts. The Russians, the Iranians, the Turks, the Sudanese, and the Libyans were all involved in the Ezekiel 38 battle, and they've all been destroyed. It's just a wasteland. And all of this in addition to the death and destruction that's been already been caused by the seven seals and the seven trumpet judgments. So these kings of the east and their 300 plus million man army are joined by the remaining kings of the earth, whoever they may be at this time. And they're led by the Antichrist and they decide that they're going to go against the Lord. Now this army may even include some super soldiers. And if you want to know what that's in reference to, you need to go back quite a few messages because we talk about that extensively. They're going to try and stop God. Talk about deception. You have to really be deceived to think you're going to win that fight. Now, the kings of the earth may very well be the ten nations formed out of the old Roman Empire. The nations of Sheba and Dedan, as outlined in Ezekiel 38 that we just read about, is modern-day Saudi Arabia they are one of the signers of the Abrahamic Accord. So they're not going to be participating in that battle against Israel. Tarshish was thought to one, at one time to be Spain, but evidence seems to point to England at this time. There's very strong evidence that this is England. And so the, young, the old line, of course, would be England, and the young lines would be those nations that have come out of or risen out of the British Empire. And that would include us. America. Look at the poster that I found online. It shows, I think this is World War II, it shows England as the old lion, and then it shows the young lions that came out of England, and they're asking for their help. Australia, Canada, India, and New Zealand. And so these nations, including America, we're told in Ezekiel 38, are not in this battle. They don't participate in this. They just protest the war. They're saying, oh, you guys are going to come and take all this bounty? You're going to come against Israel? They're protesting it. They're not participating in it. So does that mean that they're no longer in a position to fight a battle? Now, when you consider America and all of those today considered a world superpower, you have to wonder what happens to America, that they would only be on the sidelines protesting in this and not involved in it. And so that leaves Germany, France, Spain, England, Italy, and any Arab countries left to rise up with the Antichrist and the kings of the East to fight against God. Listen, that's going to be a formidable force, wouldn't it? I mean, it would have to be in the millions, millions of troops, millions of them, march into the Jezreel Valley. And so God makes a way. He makes a way for this to happen. He dries up the Euphrates River, and he's going to make a way for all those other nations to get to Israel one way or the other. And so when all the kings of the earth get there, they're going to try and defeat God and his Messiah. Think of the arrogance of mankind at that point. Think of the arrogance of Satan, to think that he can defeat God in battle, to think that any of them could even stand 
before God. Now, perhaps he think, he's thinking to himself, I got mankind to put Jesus to death before. And so maybe I can get him to put him to death again. The problem with that thinking is that Jesus isn't coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not coming back to be judged by man. He's coming back to judge mankind. He's not coming to be He's not coming back to be put to death again. He's coming to conquer evil. And listen, he's not coming to sleep in a manger. He is coming with a sword this time. Amen? Look at verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. You know, it's funny, right in the middle of all of this, Jesus puts a personal message in here. And he tells those that just before this last battle of Armageddon happens, just before his return to rule and reign, Jesus delivers this message to the believers who are left on this earth. And he's telling them, listen, in the midst of all of this, hang in there. Hold on. I am coming quickly. Blessed are those who keep their garments. And that's a reference to the holiness and, and righteousness and godliness of God. So blessed are those who stay Godly, blessed are those who keep focusing on the Lord even in the midst of all of this. And so after warning us not to be caught unaware that Jesus is coming and he could come like a thief in the night to those who are unaware, he tells us, hold on fast because I am coming. Peter says, therefore, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So Peter's saying, as the end approaches, how should we conduct ourselves? Despite all that's going on, he's saying, stay close to God. Conduct yourself as children of God and not children of the world. It's too easy. It's too easy to get caught up in the upheaval in this world and in our own country. Believe me, I know. It's too easy to get caught up in it. But we're told to avoid getting caught up in the things of the world and, and, and the things around us and the nations around us and live as God has instructed us to live as children of who are holy and set apart to him. Amen? Look at verse 16. And they gathered them together in a place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So if this battle is against God, why gather in Israel? You can fight God anywhere. Since God came against the army of the north in Ezekiel 38 and defeated them for Israel... This may be a very poor attempt of theirs to draw, to draw God out. Well, God's protecting Israel, so let's go to Israel and we'll draw them out. We'll draw them out into the field of battle. Wow. But that's exactly what God wants. Because they think all the stars are aligning for them, and they're all now able to come against Israel in this field of Jezreel, and they've got millions and millions of troops to fight against God. They think the, that this favor is on their side. But God's drawing them, has been drawing them all along to their very destruction. And so what they're asking for, what they're looking for, has been described by the prophet Joel. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the Jezreel Valley. That I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and have divided up my land. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. 
Does that sound to you that God is very favorable of the land of Israel being divided up? Joel chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 said, Let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge in the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread the grapes, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow. He's talking about the blood. And we know that that blood will reach miles and miles and miles because of the slaughter that will occur there that day. For their wickedness is great, is great multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And so what they're looking for is to draw the Lord Jesus out of heaven, out of his hiding place, right? Because Jesus is hiding from the enemy. He's fearful, I guess, of the enemy. Or so they've been so deceived to think. So they draw Jesus out of his hiding place into the valley of Jezreel, into the valley of decision. This is what they've been asking for, and this is what they'll get. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with that he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. So they're going to gather for this battle in Armageddon. And they're going to be destroyed by the sword of Jesus. It's going to be a slaughter. They wanted to draw the Messiah out of heaven, to kill him once again, only to discover that Jesus isn't coming back as the Lamb of God. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming as a warrior to take back what is rightfully his. Look at verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven, and the throne saying, It is done. So it's done. The judgments, all the judgments that will come upon the earth are finished. Paul wrote, and then, the, and then comes the end, when he divides the kingdom to God the Father, and he puts an end to the rule of all authority and power. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. So all of this has to happen. All of this has to take place. So the rule of Jesus on this earth, the millennial rule, can, can begin. And so to show the power of God, there will be an earthquake like none other. Nothing greater, not even the earthquake in, in Ezekiel 38. This earthquake is so powerful that it splits Jerusalem in three, but Jerusalem's not destroyed. And Babylon, which we'll talk about later on in Revelation, will also be destroyed. And it's interesting to note that this great city, Jerusalem, is a great city in the eyes of God. Babylon's a great city in the eyes of man. Babylon will be destroyed, but Jerusalem will stand forever. And so that's what we read in verse 18, which I skipped over. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as a mighty and great earthquake has not occurred since men were on the earth. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her a cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So Jerusalem still 
will still be standing at the end of all of this, and Babylon, which I said we will do, take a closer look at as we move forward in, in Revelation, will be destroyed. So let's look at the last two verses this morning. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon man, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So every mountain, every, every mountain is leveled. Even the mountains of the sea are leveled. They're no more. And then great hail comes down from heaven. Hail that weighs a talent. A talent was always considered in the Bible as being a weight that any man could carry. And that could vary from 75 pounds to 100 pounds. So can you imagine the devastation caused by 75 to 100 pound hailstones? Just hailstones the size of softballs create damage that is extensive. This is devastating. And God's been storing up these hailstones for years, centuries. Have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war, Job 38, 22 to 23? The time of trouble is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's this war we're talking about, this battle of Armageddon. The trouble that's come upon the whole world. And the battle is, the war is, the war of Armageddon. God's been preparing for this day for a very long time. And he's ready. He's unready to release his fury. You know, we fight with missiles and bullets and all types of mechanized warfare. God fights with earthquakes and hail and pestilence and fire and brimstone. I put my money on that rather than a missile any day. So man's going to regret ever provoking God to wrath. And as I mentioned in the beginning of this message, there are three battles yet to happen. Three battles that will take place on this earth. The Ezekiel 38 battle, the battle of Armageddon, and the battle of the millennium. And all three of these, what all three of these battles have in common is that they're man's attempt to take control of the earth from God. And in the end, God easily puts down each of these rebellions and destroys these armies. So let's look real quickly at the millennial battle. This is the battle that occurs after the thousand-year reign of Jesus, and it's described in Revelation 20. Then the thousand years were completed. Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations, which he's an expert at, isn't he? which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, so we see our leader once again, but it's not the same one, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So Satan's figured out in a thousand years, listen, I just didn't have enough manpower. I need more men. And they come again up to the broad plain of the earth that surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. So we're going to look at that, obviously, a little closer when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But once again, Satan puts it on the heart of man. And you've got to wonder, Satan's been in prison for a thousand years. Man hasn't had to deal with Satan. Only the rule of Jesus Christ, the righteous rule of Jesus Christ. So how does Satan gather an army from among mankind to number, was it, he couldn't even number them, by, it was more numerous than the sands of the sea. How could he put an army together that size? Because it just goes to show you that it's not about Satan making us do it. 
It's about the heart of man being evil all along. It's not Satan that makes you do it. It's what's inside here that makes you do it. You'd think, however, that he learned from the last two battles that you can't go against God. But maybe enough times passed that he's forgotten that. And I fear that that's what's lulled a lot of Christians to sleep and made a lot of people around this world cynical. The fact that it's been over 2,000 years since Jesus left and he hasn't returned yet. Peter addressed that. We looked at that a couple messages ago. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. So his delay, as some see it, is so that everyone has the opportunity to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that none would perish. But sadly, we know that when he does return, it will be like a thief in the night for many. Many will be surprised, including many Christians will be surprised that it's coming. Remember, the book of Revelation isn't to scare you, although there's some pretty scary verses, right? It's meant to prepare you for what's coming, and it is coming. It is coming. So be prepared, because the Lord could come at any moment for his church. He could come before we leave here this morning. Be ready. Don't fall asleep. Don't let the enemy lull you into a sense of complacency. Be ready for the Lord at any moment. And so if you want to know if you are ready, if you are rapture ready, it's as simple as ABC. And A is admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us, as it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you may think you're a good person. You may be a good person. You may be the best person you know. But based on the verses I just read, it shows that there are none good. We do need a Savior. Paul wrote, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Listen, the only way that we enter heaven, the only way that we obtain eternal life is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to do it. You can't do it by your good works. Next is B, believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and that... He rose from the dead and is coming back in glory to judge the living and the dead. You know, I've always said that if you do not believe the very first sentence in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God, you will have a very difficult time believing what's the rest of the book. You have to believe. God said it will happen and it will happen. How many times in Ezekiel 38 did he say it is for the glory of God that people know that I am the, that I am the Lord? He is going to bring to pass what he said will happen and make it happen so that the world knows that he is God. Amen. Paul wrote, For with the heart one believes in the righteousness, and the mouth, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, verses 10 through 11. So once you admit you're a sinner, once you repent of that sin and turn to Jesus Christ, we, it brings us to see, call upon the name of the Lord. Paul also wrote that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No one, no one on this earth, no matter what you've done, is beyond the reach of God, is beyond the forgiveness of God. There's only one sin that we could possibly do, and that's die in our sin without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only one. That's the only thing that'll cause us to not see heaven. So, Remember that we are enemies of Christ without Jesus. We are enemies of God. But we could be reconciled to God. Paul also wrote, while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We were reconciled to God through his death, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. So it's through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that we have eternal salvation, that we are saved, that we're not only justified and sanctified, we're, re we're reconciled to God, we're washed clean of all our sin, past, pleasant, present, and future. And if that's what you want, if that's truly what your heart desires, then I encourage you to fall upon your knees today, to call upon the name of the Lord, and as the Bible says, you will be saved. Please stand. Lord, we thank you, as always, for your word. We thank you for who you are. And we, Lord, we, as, as scary as all this sounds, we're very grateful that we will not be here to see it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and you would open the doors, give us the opportunity to share our faith with others so that they can avoid this judgment that's going to befall the entire world. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.